what you'll hear on Patreon. Even if, uh, you know, 100% of Ukrainians wanted to uh, um, fight Russia till the last Ukrainian, which we know not to be true, even if, uh, you know, right from day one, the Ukrainian uh, government had been opposed to any diplomatic settlement, which we know would be uh, false, and had simply pushed for a, you know, pure, you know, military only solution right from day one. Um, that doesn't mean that um, European countries, especially, um, have an obligation to support Ukraine uh, in this suicidal mission, especially insofar as it exposes all of Europe to the very real risk of a direct um, NATO-Russia conflict, which could, of course, escalate into a, an all-out nuclear conflict. My name is Thomas Fatsi. I'm a uh, translator, writer, and journalist um, based in Rome, Italy. My main focus uh, has, uh, uh, for a long time, was economics and uh, European integration, mostly. Uh, clearly, during the pandemic, I, uh, I, you know, focused uh, a lot on that and ended up writing a book about that too, which is called um, the COVID uh, Consensus. Uh, my previous two books were called um, The Battle for Europe, which uh, largely focused on the euro crisis, and um, Reclaiming the State, which was kind of uh, an attempt to uh, um, make a, uh, a sort of a progressive case for sovereignty, for national sovereignty. And um, these days, um, I, uh, I mostly write uh, for Unheard, which is a British magazine, and Compact which is an American uh, magazine. And uh, I write about a wide variety of topics uh, these days, uh, anything from, you know, geopolitics to uh, economics. Again, I write a lot about Europe, obviously write quite a lot about Italy. Uh, since it's where um, I live, uh, I've written a lot about uh, Ukraine, um, uh, sadly, uh, for the past, um, you know, 18 months. And uh, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty much it, I guess. The first thing that I wanted to really talk to you about was the your writing about Ukraine. Um, and I feel like we have a I have a certain affinity with your writing because correct me if I'm wrong, but I detect a, a strong suspicion towards elites or those in power. And I, and I share this, you know, like I was immediately skeptical of this rhetoric of, well, this is a war about democracy and freedom. And I was like, you don't care about democracy and freedom. We just saw that coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Moreover, you don't really care about saving lives because we went from even one death is too many to, yeah, let's just send a whole bunch of young men to the front. <laughs> so it struck me immediately that a little bit more, you know, I, you couldn't just accept the the rhetoric for what it was. Uh, as this has, was, did you start out being kind of skeptical of some of the dominant narratives or did it take you a while to kind I mean, of begin to think more critically about what is underpinning and driving this war? Well, I mean, first of all, let me say that I'm, I'm surprised that anyone, uh, you know, <laughs> believes the, uh, is ready to believe the, uh, the narrative about, you know, from the U.S. government, coming from the U.S. government and Western uh, authorities more in general. Um, concerning any war. 
I mean, we know that they have, you know, uh, systematically, repeatedly lied um, in the past to start and justify these wars. You know, the war in Iraq being the most obvious um, example. Um, but there are, you know, many more examples. Um, and so the idea, you know, um, we know, um, I mean, not everyone, of course, but um, I mean, I was, I was especially surprised by people who, you know, in the past have criticized U.S. foreign policy, in the past criticized um, the U.S. post 9-11 uh, wars, and in general, have, in general have been critical of uh, kind of U.S. Um, imperialistic and neo-colonial policies um, over the years and even decades. Um, suddenly thinking that somehow what's happening or, you know, the U.S. behavior in Ukraine um, is somehow different from, you know, all the previous wars and, you know, um, foreign interventions and actions that they've done. Suddenly, for the first time ever, uh, when it comes to this war, they're telling the truth and they're motivated solely, uh, solely by um, a uh, desire to uphold democracy and sovereignty and protect the Ukrainian um, people. Um, so, you know, I'm not shocked by people who have always been uh, supporters of, you know, um, U.S. empire or people who have always believed uh, the mainstream narrative about these wars, believing the current narrative over Ukraine, uh, you know, that fits the pattern. Uh, what I'm surprised is that, you know, people that historically have been very skeptical of, um, of official narratives completely buying into the narrative when it comes to, um, to Ukraine. Uh, but of course, you could say the same about, um, you know, what happened during the pandemic, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that too. Um, so, so that just kind of as a general, um, as a general note. Um, so yes, of course, uh, you know, even if I hadn't known anything about Ukraine uh, until February uh, 2022, um, I still would have been kind of instinctively uh, suspicious of the official narrative because I know that people in power. Um, and especially uh, people in um, uh, power within the American government uh, have a tendency to lie, especially when it comes to foreign policy. So I would have been naturally skeptical uh, and I would have, you know, been um, uh, driven to um, kind of look at whether the narrative corresponded to reality or not. Uh, but in fact, you know, when, it, when I did know about Ukraine, uh, unlike, you know, like a lot of people, I would say, uh, in Western countries who likely had never really thought about Ukraine that much before um, February, 2022. Um, I've been following what was happening in Ukraine um, for the past, um, uh, uh, well, now eight years, um, almost nine years. Um, and by that, I mean that in fact, there was a war going on in Ukraine even before 2022. In fact, there's been a, um, a, a brutal, bloody civil war been going on in Ukraine since 2014. Um, and I also followed uh, the events that preceded the start of the civil war in 2014. And I'm talking about the um, violent regime change. Uh, some call it a coup, some call it an overthrow. It definitely was an unconstitutional regime change uh, whereby um, the democratically elected government, um, the democratically elected president Yanukovych, was removed 
um, in uh, you know a U.S. back um, series of actions, uh, which culminated in very violent clashes with uh, between protesters and you know, Ukrainian security forces, um, and that's that's what triggered the war. And so, of course, when I started hearing, you know, out of that, oh, a war has broken out in Ukraine now that Russia has invaded, uh, you know, that immediately uh, sent, uh, you know, um, alarm bells ringing because that in itself was a lie. And so, you know, uh, that, that, that was just the first of many, many lies that have been told um, about this war since day one. So tell me a bit more about that lie. The main lie, you know, as, as, as I was saying, was that the war started in 2022. The war started in, 20, uh, in 2014. So Russia's, Russia's invasion in 2022 is simply uh, an escalation of a war that was already um, going on. Um, a war that was um, already a proxy war um, because it was a war a civil war that was um, kind of initially triggered by the United States meddling in uh, Ukrainian um, affairs, supporting uh, protesters and even violent armed um, protesters that ended up overthrowing the um, uh, democratically elected government of Ukraine. So, uh, you know, that in itself uh, tells you that this is that even way before 2022, this was about much more than just Russia versus Ukraine. This was already a much wider uh, conflict involving a variety of, um, of actors. Um, you know, first and foremost, the United States, but also um, EU countries and the European Union as an institution. Um, and of course, NATO. Because uh, what happened after um, the overthrow of the... Um, of the Ukrainian government in 2014 was, uh, of course, the, 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 the installation of a pro-Western, um, uh, you could say, puppet government, because we know that the, uh, the, the, the prime minister and other uh, key members of government were kind of handpicked by um, you know, then Secretary um, of State Victoria Newland and the then ambassador to, um, uh, the then American ambassador to Ukraine. We know this because uh, a phone conversation between the two between the two was then leaked, where they were discussing, you know, who should you know go and form the uh, the new Ukrainian uh, government. So clearly, the U.S. was directly and heavily involved in uh, what happened in you know and the events prior to the overthrow of the government and the events that followed that, uh, including the selection of the uh, of the new um, uh, of the new government. And, so uh, they lied to kind of create this narrative of, of this sort of clean slate, that this was something totally new, yeah, no connections to the past. And, and of course, it doesn't, end in, it doesn't end there. We know that from 2014 to 2022, a lot happened in Ukraine, which also explains uh, Russia's decision to invade. I mean, it's important to understand because uh, another big lie, which of course relates to the first lie, is that this was a uh, completely irrational act by an essentially uh, crazy dictator driven by, um, um, you know, a purely imperialistic, uh, chauvinistic um, drive, which some say is even, you know, kind of intrinsic to the nature of the Russian uh, state. But fundamentally, that this was a completely unprovoked invasion. Uh, in fact, you hardly ever hear um, any Western or official authority talk about 
the invasion without the prefix uh, unprovoked. In fact, you know, it's almost part of a generalized Western-wide uh, you know, propaganda campaign that you can't, you can't mention the invasion without uh, adding the prefix um, un unprovoked. In fact, it was. Um, it was unprovoked. Of course, that's part of, that's a big part of the Western narrative, the Western lie, because if this was the action of a madman driven solely, solely by, uh, you know, his uh, hatred for Ukrainians and desire to conquer as much territory as possible, uh, i.e. a new Hitler, as he is often described in the Western media and even by Western officials, then, uh, of course, there is no solution but a uh, complete military victory. Uh, by Ukraine and and the West and NATO, because of course the implication of their argument is that he will never stop. Once he conquers Ukraine, he will just keep moving on into uh, arguably west, you know, moving west towards uh, uh, you know to, to, towards the, the other European countries until he's conquered the entire continent. Now this is absolutely um, uh, ludicrous, but of course it's central to the Western. Um, to the Western strategy, because that is what justifies the Western strategy. That is what justifies uh, not uh, attempting to reach any diplomatic solution. Because if he's if Putin is a crazy madman, he can't be reasoned with. Um, so it's important to uh, understand the origins of uh, of the invasion. It's important to understand that it's an it's a, it's an act that may be immoral. In fact, is immoral. I would argue, as all wars are, but is not irrational. In fact, is rational from the perspective of any state's uh, natural propension, I would say, and even their duty uh, to their own citizens to ensure the integrity and survival of their own states. Uh, I think this is, what, this is what we're talking about here. And, um, and, and so we know that between 2014 and 2022, a lot happened. What you know, we saw increased uh, logistical, financial, and military support by NATO uh, to uh, Ukraine. We saw Ukraine being uh, de facto integrated into NATO. We know there's a big debate about whether Ukraine should be integrated into NATO or not. Uh, but that debate completely, miss, completely misses the point because being integrated into NATO is not about, you know, uh, it's also about, of course, the formal alliance and the other country's obligation to defend that country in case of attack, et cetera, et cetera even though they are caveats to that too. So, um, but in fact, you know, when, uh, when, NATO's, when NATO is military, militarily, uh, uh, logistically, financially supporting the military of another country, in this case, Ukraine, uh, when it's working towards what they call interoperability between the Ukrainian military and NATO's military, uh, what you have is a de, de facto integration of Ukraine into NATO, into the NATO structure. Uh, we even saw uh, in 2021 uh, NATO being invited uh, to participate in a massive um, naval um, exercise that was held by NATO in the Black Sea, uh, which saw the participation of 33 countries plus Ukraine. So when you're even being invited to officially participate in, uh, in war games uh, by NATO, uh, you know, you can arguably say that you're effectively uh, becoming part of, of, of NATO. And that's something that Russia had repeatedly made clear over the years it would never um, accept uh, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the fact that Russia shares about 1,500 kilometers of border with Ukraine. Um, so, so really, it's, it's perfectly uh, you know, reasonable for Russia not to want Ukraine to be integrated 
de facto into uh, into NATO, which is what was happening. And on top of that, you got you've got a whole series of uh, you know escalatory actions by NATO. You've got live fire um, um, exercises being conducted by NATO in um, in Estonia. You've got you've got the U.S. withdrawing from a number of um, of, of 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 security agreements with Russia um, over the years, but up up until um, uh, you know twenty uh, twenty one, um, and so so there was a constant escalation um, by uh, NATO, and um, and again I just want to stress the fact that of course this ha- this was kind of the final stage of a you could say twenty year long um provocation by NATO against Russia. And I'm of course talking about NATO's complete disregard of the assurances and promises uh that were given to Russia um uh in the early nineties that NATO would not expand to the east. Of course we know the opposite happened and by the mid two thousands um essentially all of the formal uh virtually all of the formal countries of the Warsaw Pact had been integrated uh, into NATO. And uh Russia hadn't, you know, reacted to 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 any of that. I think NATO did that at the time simply because it knew it could. It knew Russia was too weak to react, uh, and so it just decided that it would, you know, continue expanding uh, in a way that would justify NATO's existence. You know, kind of a self fulfilling rationale for NATO, um, but it would also put pressure on Russia. Um, America has always been afraid of Russia. Uh, Russia being this massive. Um, you know, uh, a country. It's always, you know, dreamt, uh, or at least you know, sections of the U.S. establishment have always dreamt of breaking up Russia. And so I think they just thought, well, that was an act of hubris. It was just like, you know, we're going to keep expanding and circling Russia because there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, I don't think they were inviting a Russian reaction. I mean, they weren't deliberately inviting a Russian reaction. They simply thought, thought Russia would react. I think that changes at some point. I think we reach a point where, and you see that very clearly, and you know, with the Ukraine affair. I think at some point the U.S. changes strategy, and the strategy becomes that of deliberately provoking Russia. I would say, in the hope of provoking uh, an invasion, um, I think it was quite clear to U.S. officials that this um, that this war would have been very beneficial to U.S. interests, at least in the short term, and that in fact has turned out to be very much um, true. And we can uh, discuss that further. Um, and so, I would say that not only has the war been been provoked by the U.S. and NATO. I say I would say that even worse, it has been deliberately um, provoked uh, in order for the U.S. to pursue, um, you know, its wider geostrategic goals in the Eurasian um, region. So I do want to come back to that specifically. What interests are at play here? But what do you think of the argument where, where that I'm sure gets thrown at you all the time, which is um, what you're saying is, you know, your her skirt was too short. You know, um, that just because these things happen doesn't necessarily mean that Russia was sort of forced to act, forced to react. Well, I don't take a um, I don't take a moral stance on these issues. Um, I would say uh, ultimately it depends what what's our goal is our goal to uh, prevent um, as many rapes and or invasions as possible. Or is it to simply uh, make a political, um, you know, argument? Uh, if our aim is to um, prevent as many rapes as possible, of course, uh, enforcement, education, cultural change is all very important. 
But at the same time, I would say that not walking into a uh, a, a party full of you know drunken, uh, testosterone-filled uh, adolescents wearing uh, a, a a bikini is probably not a good idea. In a sense that that testosterone-filled uh, male is very much likely to do something bad uh, to you. So my advice to my daughter, you know, when she reaches that age, would be, you know, don't put yourself in a dangerous situation because uh, there are, you know. There are situations where men will do bad things to women. And of course, that's not a justification. It's simply a fact. Uh, in the same, by the same token, um, I would say it's a fact that states, um, you know, states have some kind of instinctual obligations uh, to their own people, to themselves. Um, states are, you know, are, are fairly rational I would say I agree with John you know, Merschheimer, the, 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 the famous international um, uh, relations theorist um, from, from America who makes a very similar case. Uh, it's important to understand how states uh, work, how they act, if we want to uh, achieve the aim of the greatest degree of peace uh, possible. Uh, and we know that, um, you know, for most for, for, for most states, I would say for most sovereign states, not all states are sovereign, uh, and especially for kind of major powers, um, ensuring their own uh, survival and staving off any threat to their survival and integrity is just an instinct they have. It doesn't mean that what that 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 what dri that what that drives them to do is right or moral. It's just a fact. Um, so we know that if Canada or Mexico uh, entered a military alliance with Russia or China, uh, or even went as far as installing um, offensive weapons systems on their territory, um, America would react very badly. We remember what happened the last time a few missiles were deployed near the American border in Cuba. The world almost ended, uh, in, uh, and that almost... Um, drove America and uh, the USSR to a nuclear conflict. So that's just how states, and especially major states, um, react. And I think we know that that's how states react. And that's why over the years, for example, uh, NATO and America and Russia have drawn up all these security arrangements, all these security um, um, agreements, whereby they decided you know, not to engage in offensive action against each other, not to deploy uh, long-range ballistic or even less so nuclear missiles uh, near their respective borders, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so we know that this is, we know that states, that if we want to ensure that states, or if we want to diminish the risk that states act uh, violently, we have to take the uh, legitimate security concerns of those states into um, consideration. Um, and so again, you know, this, this isn't something that happened out of the blue as far back as the late 1990s, you've got among the, you know, foremost, uh, uh us diplomats uh, of the 20th century from George Kennan, who was, uh, at one time, the U S ambassador to, uh, um, the Soviet union under Stalin to a number of other officials. Uh, but as far back as the late nineties, Kennan told the New York Times, uh, and that was the very early stages of NATO expansion. And he was already saying, look, this is 
uh, uh, a threatening action against uh, threatening behavior against Russia. And if we continue down this path, this is going to invite a reaction from Russia at some point. Um, so, you know, the fact that if you've got countless high level, certainly not pro-Russian U.S. officials over the years and indeed decades saying, if we do X, Russia is going to react with Y. And the U.S. keeps doing X and we end, and we end up with Russia doing Y. Uh, you know, again, it's not a moral justification for for what Russia did, but I think it does show that this was that, that this was amply um, um, predictable, and it could have been avoided. Um, I would say, and I think uh, this is I think this is the crucial um, this is a crucial point. Um, I think, uh, and, and that is that I don't think Russia wanted to go down this path. Um, I think it tried up until the last minute to avoid um, this war. We've got, a, 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 I would, in hindsight, an almost heartbreaking letter that the U.S., that the Russian ambassador to the U.S. Um, wrote in December 2021, so just a few months before the invasion, where the Russian ambassador said, says to his counterparts in the U.S., look, the situation is very, very serious. Can we please get down, uh, get back? Uh, at the table, at the at the um, at the diplomatic table, and can we please start drawing up, uh, really start sketching a an architecture? Can we start, you know, maybe could the U.S. maybe consider re-entering a whole series of security agreements that it has it has um, it had walked out of in the previous years? Uh, and it makes concrete proposals to the U.S. in terms of, and it never says so openly, but it's quite clear within, you know, uh, between the lines that the Russia is saying. You know, this time we're not going to back down. So Russia is essentially telling the U.S., look, we are willing to sit down and uh, move towards a de-escalation of the situation. Uh, but if you guys are not willing to de-escalate, this is what will happen. It's a very, very explicit um, letter. Uh, it's a letter that's completely um, disregarded and ignored by uh, U.S. officials. And in fact, we keep uh, uh, we keep witnessing, uh, you know, escal you know, inflaming escalatory remarks by U.S. officials and even by Zelensky, who keeps repeating that Ukraine uh, will join NATO at some point in the future, you know, and, and and stuff like that. <clears throat> and um, and so there's you know, a constant escalation, which results in what we know uh, to have happened in February 2022. Um, and of so of course, what what they would say is that actually this is you know, Russian manifest destiny at work here, that it's a totally separate traje trajectory than the American or NATO <laughs> escalation. Well, I mean, I I'd like to see proof of that. Uh, I, don't, I think there's nothing that shows um, an intrinsic kind of imperialistic expansionary drive in uh, post-Cold uh, War Russian um, foreign policy. I really don't see where 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 that where that drive um, is. I see an expansionary drive by NATO towards Russia's borders. Um, so I'd like to see you know the evidence uh, uh, for that. Um, I think you know the writings of you know uh, or obscure Russian intellectuals or even some declarations that may have been, may have been made by certain Russian officials. 
uh, 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 over the years is not really enough to make a case that, you know, this is something that Russia uh, was going to do regardless of what the US or NATO ha had ever done. I think there's a much stronger case that points towards the fact that this is a clear um, reaction to war uh, against um, against NATO uh, against NATO policy. I mean, I, there's really very little evidence that this, you know, is part of some of, of something that's kind of intrinsic to the Russia, to the kind of great, you know, great Russia um, ideology. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I. I I find that to be uh, an easy excuse because that essentially lets NATO and the West off the hook for everything. It means that that we have no responsibility whatsoever because they would have done this um, anyway. So um, I find that quite a, a spurious um, argument. To be uh, to be honest, um, you know, again, this would um, this would imply that on Russia's behalf. Um, the objective is simply to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing until they've conquered all of Ukraine and then to keep on pushing south, east, west, north. Uh, well, maybe not north, definitely uh, west. Um, and, um, and in fact, even that is disproven by the fact that we now, well, it was clear, you know, it's been clear throughout the months, but now we have more evidence of the fact that um, there have been uh, various attempts at diplomatic engagement between Russia and Ukraine since the start of this war. Uh, so again, on one hand, we're present, we're, you know, we keep hearing in Western mainstream media, you know, where the good guys, where the rational guys, where the ones that have the interest of Ukraine at heart. You know, Putin is a crazy guy who can't be reasoned with. Uh, that flies in the face of the fact that, in fact, uh, there have been many talks, many diplomatic talks between. Russian officials, Russian authorities, and Ukrainian authorities. Um, the first one's beginning a few days after the invasion. Um, then we have another set of talks um, around March. These are brokered by the former um, Israeli prime minister, um, who um, who said that you know Russia and Ukraine were quite close to reaching a deal on that on that occasion. And then in April, again, we have another, another attempt at reaching a diplomatic agreement, uh, this time brokered by um, Turkey. And in all three cases, what we hear from people directly involved uh, in the negotiations, i.e. this former British, uh, this former Israeli um, prime minister, whose uh, name I can't remember now, and the Turkish officials that were involved in the, in the negotiations, they say at some point, um, you know, even... Even once we'd reached quite high, uh, high level stages of the negotiation, where there was a, a broad agreement, a general broad agreement about a possible um, uh, uh, diplomatic solution to, 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 to end, you know, at least for a ceasefire, uh, US or UK officials, uh, you know, essentially stormed the negotiations and told the Ukrainians that they uh, mustn't negotiate with Russia. And we have very authoritative people saying this. We have, you know, this former Israeli prime minister saying it. We have the Turkish officials who are involved in the negotiations saying it. Uh, with it they always tell the same story. Uh, there was a broad agreement between the two sides, and then the U.S., the U.S. Uh, or the U.K. stormed in and uh, essentially blocked the negotiations. So who's the, you know, who's the irrational one? Who's the one pushing uh, for war? Um, you know, I, 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 
I think we would do very well to take a you know a long hard look in a mirror, uh, and talked about you know you know the, the West uh, uh, as a whole. Uh, often the uh, you know the charges that we lay against others, uh, you know reflect reflect much much more you know our own behavior than that than that of our than that of our enemies. I think you know what what this shows is that if there is uh, you know, make the principal actor that has sabotaged every uh, possible negotiation that has pushed for a constant escalation of the war here. It's not Russia, it's the US and uh, NATO. You took part in a debate. If Ukraine stops, if Russia stops fighting, there's no more war. Yeah. If Ukraine stops fighting, there's no more Ukraine. Of course. But my point is... But Ukraine could stop uh, fighting uh, tonight and the Americans would continue to keep the war going. And everyone kind of gasped in the audience. And he walked it back. He was sort of unwilling to commit to that statement. What do you think of that? Would you take it that far? I think that's what we've seen. I mean, when you have, uh, when you have Ukrainian... Um, high-level uh, negotiators, high-level government officials um, coming very close to drafting uh, uh, an agreement with Russia. And in one case, uh, we even had the actual draft of the agreement. Uh, Putin um, showed the document at a recent, um, uh, to, to a recent delegation of African uh, leaders in St. Petersburg, um, I think. So the, we have the actual document, I think already countersigned by um, Ukraine. So this is how far Ukraine ha has gone uh, throughout the war to try to stop this war, um, just for just to be stopped each time by um, by Washington. So that in itself, I, I think, is a confirmation of what Hitchens said. So it's not a hypothetical. This is something that I would say has already happened repeatedly um, over the course of the past um, eighteen months, and now we start seeing these disgusting, uh, uh, you know, editorials. In the in the U.S. press, lamenting the fact that um, I think one guy was it David um, Ignatius, uh, if that's how you pronounce his name, um, the you know pro-war hawk um, who writes for the Washington Post, uh, lamenting the fact that um, oh no, he no, what he said was that, um, and this relates to America benefiting from this war. He said, yes, it hasn't been turning out too well for Ukraine, but this has been, I think his words were, this has been a marvelous summer for NATO, something along those lines. And he was referring, of course, to the fact that, you know, uh, Finland and uh, Finland had entered NATO, Sweden wants to enter NATO. Um, in fact, you know, will enter NATO. And um, um, so that says a lot about the US mindset. Um, and we have countless other, uh, you know, editorials and even uh, um, speeches by uh, U.S. politicians essentially saying, "Look, I mean, this war is is great. We're achieving a series of, you know, it's we're we're benefiting from this war in many ways at very little uh, cost. And of course, you know, the, the economic cost, as much as it, you know, uh, uh, may be inflaming when compared to how few how few resources the U.S. puts elsewhere compared to how much money they put into the Ukraine war." In macro terms, it's not like this is a big, big expense for the U.S. Um, they're testing out new weaponry, so it's working out quite well for them. Uh, and now, it's also in keeping with um, the way that America has approached wars, where they try to stay out of it as long as possible and supply weapons. <laughs> so there's, you know, it's, sure, it's not, gone, it's not um, out of line. We know that. I mean, America has learned that uh, 
I mean, the U.S. officials have, you know, understood that amount, you know, that as a result of the post 9-11 wars, which, you know, cost millions of lives to, you know, people around the world, but also cost thousands and thousands of lives of U.S. soldiers, that uh, the American public had become quite, um, you know, as they say, uh, kind of body bag averse. Um, they don't like to see American soldiers coming back in coffins uh, for, for obvious reasons. And so, you know, uh, America has learned the lesson and now, you know, it, it tries to um, keep the, you know, actual, it keeps to do anything, everything in its power to avoid actual uh, boots on the ground when it comes to wars. That doesn't mean that it doesn't wage wars, it doesn't wage aggression against countries. Uh, it now resorts to drones, it resorts to proxy armies. Uh, by the way, this isn't even the first uh, proxy conflict that America and Russia fight. Even the Syrian conflict was to a large degree a proxy war between the U.S. and, and Russia. Uh, and, 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 um, and so what you, you know, so I think you have all these statements, uh, lately, even going as far as lamenting the fact that Ukrainians, um, are becoming, uh, I think one, one guy said, um, uh, what was it? Um, uh, death averse. It wasn't death averse, but you know, they're becoming averse to dying basically. Uh, and that's, this is why the counter offensive. Um, hasn't played out as everyone hoped uh, or as everyone, you know, uh, pretended it would, or at least in the West. Um, so now they're actually blaming Ukrainians for not wanting, for not fighting with, you know, uh, the stamina that the U.S. would like them to fight, uh, to fight um, with. Uh, in the face of what even, you know, military experts say are often just suicide missions, just people sent uh, on foot, or, you know, even in tanks, but with no air support against Russian artillery, where they just get taken out one by one, bam, 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 bam. And, uh, you know, these, these are literal suicide missions. And, um, and clearly, you know, the U.S., you know, U.S. officials, uh, they don't give a damn about all the Ukrainians that have died in this war and that continue to die. I think that, that seems clear. They have no concern whatsoever for the massive tragic loss of life in Ukraine. According to, uh, official um, figures, which means the actual number is probably even higher, there have been <laughs> close to 100,000 Ukrainian uh, deaths um, up until now. The number is probably even higher. Um, so that gives you an idea of the magnitude of the loss, massive uh, loss of life, um, which I would say the US and NATO are to a large degree responsible for in, you know, insofar as they did everything in their power to ensure that this war um, continued even in the face of Ukrainian um, attempts to, uh, you know, <clears throat> find a diplomatic settlement with, um, with Russia. And so I think the idea that <clears throat> people in the U.S. and the U.S. establishment care about Ukraine um, is, is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, you know, to them, Ukrainians are li literally just pawns on a chessboard. Um, you know, just like uh, the Afghans were in, you know, in the 80s. Uh, and just as countless other proxies that the U.S. has relied on throughout the decades um, have always uh, been, uh, these are not human beings in their eyes. They're just pawns on a uh, on a chessboard. And I think you know, um, and so this also explains the you know the the, the, the increasing reports that we see from Ukraine um, about you know the, the very high number of Ukrainian men that are trying to leave the country. They just, they don't want to be drafted and sent to die on these suicide missions, uh, for a, a, for a war that cannot be won. 
which is something that I think a lot of people uh, on the ground in Ukraine understand um, quite well. Uh, these are stories that you won't, you know, generally aren't reported in, in, in the mainstream Western media because we're led to believe that all Ukrainians are gung-ho, just super happy to go to the front line and die for their nation. Uh, in fact, you know, it's picture is quite different. Um, there are a number, you know, that there's, there's war fatigue for obvious reasons kicking in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine and a number of you know, young Ukrainians, um, don't want to go to the front. Uh, they don't want to go to the front. They've seen the videos of, 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 of people just sent completely, you know, with no defense into minefields. They've seen the videos of people, uh, just sent, uh, uh, you know, with their own, with nothing but their bodies up against Russian artillery, artillery just to be taken out, um, you know, one at a time. Um, and, and so I think, you know, but, but we never hear about that, you know? And so a, again, you know, the, 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 I think we have a very skewed idea, uh, even of the sentiment within Ukraine when it comes, uh, when it comes to, to, uh, to this war. Well, you know, they, they trot out surveys all the time, you know, saying like, I think the most recent one that I saw was something like 84% of Ukrainians are in it for the long haul there. They support the war effort. And that's the, that's the big justification. It's like the Ukrainians themselves are willing to fight to the last man. There might be some war fatigue. There might be some loss of heart. Sure, that happens all the time in wars. But on the whole, Ukrainians seem to be desperate for intervention. So is it is it not... I, I guess it kind of gets framed a lot as like pro-Ukraine, pro-Russia. And if you're not sort of in support of their desperate calls for help, then you're essentially pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine. Well, again, you know, I mean, this, this is the whole argument about, oh, it's all about, there's a, you know, it's the Ukrainian agency argument, which you always hear, you know. Oh, when you talk about a proxy war, you're denying agency to, um, to Ukraine. It's Ukraine making the decisions it's ukraine uh devising the policy devising the strategy we're simply uh helping helping them um uh, um um accomplish the you know the aims that they have completely independently and autonomously drawn up uh, and i think you know but what we've talked about until now i think this proves that narrative we have a number uh you know the idea that the Ukrainians are in charge and the West simply kind of <clears throat> giving them what they're asking us and helping them, you know, uh, achieve their own strategic aims, which we're not uh, influencing in any way. That's ridiculous. I mean, we know that, and in fact, it's being reported, uh, it's been reported these days, even in the Western press, that NATO, uh, of course, NATO command is uh, uh, actively engaged in drawing up the strategy, strategies in uh, uh, in drawing up the uh, the the uh, and devising a military campaign, um, the idea is that Ukrainians are doing all this by themselves and that there's no Western influence uh, or NATO influence is is absolutely um, ludicrous. And in fact, you know what we've discussed earlier, I think, shows that there have been numerous instances where Ukraine wanted to go in one direction and uh, the, the the U.S. told them to push in the opposite direction. <laughs> and so I think this denies. Um, a good part of the Ukrainian agency argument. Where was the agency, uh, uh, you know, why wasn't the Ukrainian agency taken into consideration throughout all these uh, uh, attempts to reach a diplomatic uh, agreement? Apparently, no one cared about the Ukrainian agency in that case. So, Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian uh, 
agency is only uh, uh, good when it's when it when it goes in the direction we want the Ukrainians to go. Whenever the Ukrainians, um, you know, uh, differ in their you know policy and in their strategy from the U.S. NATO strategy, somehow their agency uh, is 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 not taken into consideration anymore. Visit patreon.com/ashleyafrawley for part two.